you so much. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. We encourage you. You're more than welcome to use that. And you can find the text on page uh, 47. So, so let me say this. Number one, um, we exhibited, we being the staff, exhibited a significant lack of faith in you when we uh, ordered our Experiencing God books. And so we didn't order enough to begin with, and we've had to go back and order several more now three occasions. And so we should, we, we should have enough books. We, we do have enough books, not should, uh, for everyone that's registered. And we have extras if you haven't registered yet. Want to begin that study. Uh, whether you can join us on Wednesday nights or not, we encourage you and invite you to be a part of that. And I'm excited about what I believe God uh, may do through this study. And so what, what we're going to do on Sunday mornings is we're going to also follow along with this study. But please hear me. Don't, don't think that this is going to be a sufficient substitute for the study. Okay? Uh, there's too much material. There's too much uh, good stuff in the study for me to cover each week in, in one sermon. And so um, we will kind of dive into the main points of it um, and try to just, just kind of pull it all together uh, as we work through this week to week together here on Sunday mornings, and I'm excited about that. So how do we want to begin this? If you're familiar with the study, if you're not and you're going through it, the title of the study is Experiencing God, and then kind of the byline is Knowing and Doing the Will of God. And implied in that statement is something that's very important. It's, it's one of the things that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion, and it's this. Christianity at its core is not a religion. I know we classify it as a religion, but if you really dive into it, it it's not a religion. Christianity is about a love relationship with God. It is about knowing the God of the universe in a very real and personal way. It's, it's one of the things, again, that sets it apart from every other faith system, every other belief system in the world. No other uh, faith system acknowledges or even embraces the idea that you can know their God, their object of worship personally. And to take it a step further, no other faith system argues that, that, that the object of their worship came to dwell with us, to be with us, to come in the flesh, and then certainly um, to die for us, right? That, that kind of just sounds strange even to, to, to say it out loud, that the object of our worship would die for his worshipers, right? It's kind of backwards, uh, but that's exactly what Christianity is. And, and let me just kind of elaborate on that a little bit real quick, just by way of introduction. Listen closely to John 17 and verse 3. Jesus says these words, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus says the essence of eternal life is this, that we might know the only true God and the one he has sent, Jesus Christ. 
In the original language, the, he, uh, the Greek of which the New Testament is written, the word know there, it is a word um, that you and I would pronounce gnosko. And the word means to know intimately. It, it is a word that is used to reference the most intimate of interpersonal relationships. It's not a word the Greeks would use just to say, well, I know who the president is, or I know the person that lives down the street. No, it is a word that would only be used to refer to the most intimate of interpersonal relationships. And we can know the God of the universe. We can know him intimately. Um, when Jesus called his disciples to join him, he used very specific language, a language that emphasizes this idea of a personal an intimate relationship. Let, let me again just share that with you as we introduce uh, this study. In Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, here's what we read. As he, he is Jesus, as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we read this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Follow me. That, that was the call that Jesus gave to those early disciples. Literally means, come with me. Join me. Come alongside of me. Be with me. And that is the essence of our faith that we call Christianity. It is to be with Jesus. It is to come alongside of him and to follow him and to join him in what he's doing. And that is the goal and that is the aim of this Bible study that we call Experiencing God. So I have several points there in your notes if you want to follow along with me there on the back side. Um, and if you're, if you're participating in the study, you've certainly uh, seen these and already read these uh, this week. But let's dive into those. Here's the first point. God pursues a love relationship with me. God pursues a love relationship with me. So you're in Genesis, uh, Genesis. you're in Exodus chapter 3. Let's look first at verses 1 through 6. And the passage will be on the screen uh, behind me as well. Here's what we read. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now Midian is, is in the northern part of what we call Saudi Arabia today, all right? He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That is another name for Mount Sinai. Now, that's a pretty prominent mountain and that, that, that Moses will, will um, have a lot of involvement with later on. Then the angel of the Lord appear, appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? 
When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So here's the picture. Moses has fled Egypt. We'll get more into that in just a moment. He's in the wilderness of Midian. He's just shepherding his father-in-law's herds, his father-in-law's flocks. And all of a sudden, he looks over and he sees a bush that's on fire, but the bush is not being consumed, right? And so what does Moses do like any, 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 any individual of the male species? What do we do? Man, we see a fire. We're, we're going to run to it, right? We're not going to run away. We're going to find out what's happening over here. I want to see this thing. And it's not even being consumed, so what in the world's going on? And he gets to it, and the God of the universe begins to speak to him. Pretty phenomenal, isn't it? Pretty remarkable. Here's what you and I need to understand from this. God wants us to know him and to worship him and to obey him and to love him. God is pursuing a love relationship with us. Think about this. God pursued Moses. God went after Moses. Moses wasn't going after God when he encountered him at the burning bush. Just remember, Moses had killed a man in Egypt, and he was fleeing from Pharaoh, right? He wasn't looking for God. He was just had fled for his safety. And yet, what does God do? God pursues him. God goes after him. And he's doing the same for you, and he's doing the same for me. God is pursuing us today. He, he wants us to know him intimately. He wants us to worship him passionately. He wants us to obey him faithfully. He, he wants us to love him radically. That's what God wants for your life and for my life. None of us are excluded from God's pursuit of our life. That's what he, he is wanting for us today. And so as we study this together, just know God is pursuing you. He is chasing after you. One, one ancient uh, theologian referred to him as the hound of heaven. He, he's coming after us. And that is a really, really good thing. So how do we cultivate an intimate love relationship with God, right? How, how do we cultivate that relationship? We talked a little bit about this last week when we looked at um, those five spiritual resolutions for the new year. Well, number one, we, we cultivate a love relationship with God through prayer. Talking to God, listening to God, crying out to the Lord, humbling ourselves before Him. One of the most fascinating things about prayer is this. Prayer is an admission of our dependence on God. That, that's as much as anything, it is an admission that, that God, we can't do this. I can't do this. God, I need you. And that's a really good place for us to be. Through prayer, through the study of God's Word. I, I know I sound like a broken record at times, uh, but, but I'm not going to apologize for that. There is no substitute church for spending time in God's Word. None. You, you can't spend too much time in God's Word. 
Open God's love letter and see what he has to say to you. Read it and study it and meditate on it and memorize it. Hide God's word in your heart and and know it and learn it. Worship, just the singing of God's praises, the giving him of the adoration that he alone is due. So these are some ways that we can cultivate a love relationship with God. So point number one, God pursues a love relationship with me, with us. Number two, God is always at work around me. God is always at work around me. Look with me there uh, in in Exodus chapter 2, just a few verses before, beginning in verse 23. Look what we read here. After a long time, the king, king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the Israelites, and God knew. Now let me give you a little bit of history, and you can, you can read this and, and see the details just beginning in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. What began with 71 people, the descendants of Jacob, 71 people left the land of Canaan and traveled to Egypt during the great famine. That 71 people has grown into several million uh, by most estimates when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It, you don't, don't turn there, but just make a mental note, or you may want to write this down. In Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, they took a census of all the males 20 years old and above, excluding the Levites, and it came to about 600,000. So if there's 600,000 males 20 years old and above, let's say there's one woman per male, now we're up to 1.2 million, not the count. Uh, small children. So we don't know the exact number, but most folks estimate that at this time there, there were several million Hebrew people uh, living in Egypt. Now, for 400 years prior to this encounter uh, with God at the burning bush, um, the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt. And we're told in chapter 1 that they were treated ruthlessly by the Egyptians. So after these long years, you see there after a long time, after 400 years of difficult and ruthless slave labor, the Hebrew people started to cry out to God. They started to plead for his help and for his deliverance from this bondage and slavery. And here's what's so important for us to understand about this. Long before God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, God was working in the hearts and the minds of the Hebrew people. He was preparing them for what he was getting ready to do. God is always at work around us. We even see in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Exodus that God was also working in Moses' life long before the burning bush in ways that Moses really didn't realize until later in life. Remember what was happening. Because of the, 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 the enormous population growth of the, the Israelite people, a new Pharaoh has come to power after the Pharaoh that promoted Joseph to his 
his vice president, so to speak, a new Pharaoh has come to power who feels threatened by this, this large population of Hebrew people. And so what does he tell the midwives to do? He says, listen, when, when, the, when the Hebrew women give birth to a son, I want you to kill him. Let the girls live, but kill the son. Well, the Hebrew wives, they, 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 are, they, they, they fear God more than they fear man. There's a great lesson for all of us there, and we'll talk more about that sometime down the road. But they feared God more than man, and so they didn't follow Pharaoh's instructions. So he brings them back into his office. He said, what's going on? He said, listen, these Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They give birth fast before we can get there. All right, well, when they give birth to a, to a, child, a male child, throw them in the river. Save the women. Well, a particular husband and wife gave birth to a son. She hid him as long as she could. When she could hide him no longer, she put him in a basket, put him in the Nile River, and Pharaoh's daughter rescues him, brings her into his home, and even finds his own mom to nurse him. And then he's raised in the home of Pharaoh, and he's given the name Moses. So God was working in Moses' life long before he revealed himself at the burning bush. And so, church, here's what we need to understand. At this very moment, at this very moment of time, God is working in your life. He is working all around you. He was working in the life of your family. He is working in the hearts and minds of your coworkers. He's working in the hearts and minds of, of your neighbors, of your classmates, of your teammates. God is working all over this community right now, even as we speak. God is always at work around us. He is a God who never sleeps nor, nor slumbers. He doesn't take any time off. He, he doesn't take a holiday or a vacation. He's at work. And part of our goal in this study is to find where God is working and get involved in that. Amen? Let's keep going. The third point. God invites me to become involved with him in his work. God invites me to become involved with him in his work. Look with me again in Exodus chapter 7, beginning, uh, Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Look what we read. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors. God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush. I know about their sufferings, and I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I've also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, try to give you a little bit of a timeline. As best as we understand, Moses fled Egypt when he was 40 years old. He went back to Egypt at the age of 80. Sometime during this, towards the end of that 40 years, near the, his age of 80, okay, God says, Moses... I've been working, the wheels have been spinning, and I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to lead my people to freedom. He says, Moses, I'm inviting you to get involved with what I'm doing. 
There's a parable in the Old Testament that's found in Jeremiah chapter 18. Just write this verse down. Let me read it to you. Jeremiah chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Listen to this Old Testament parable. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house. There I will reveal my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working away at the wheel. But the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand, so he made it into another jar, as it seemed right for him to do. The word of the Lord came to me, House of Israel, can I not treat you as this potter treats his clay? This is the Lord's declaration. Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. And so I want you to think about this for just a moment. God likens us, his people, to clay and likens himself to a potter. And here's what he says, can I not do with your life what I want to do with it, just like the potter has the right and the authority and the responsibility to do what he wants to do with the clay. And so here's the challenge for all of us this morning, all right? The clay, let's just, following this parable, let's just pretend the clay, I know it's an inanimate object, but that it has some kind of um, involvement in this. The clay has to be moldable, right? If the clay's not moldable, the, par- the potter is not going to be able to make it into a vessel useful for his purposes, whatever that vessel is. A jar, a coffee cup, a plate, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter. The clay has to be moldable. The clay has to allow the potter to mold it and shape it and to spend it and to break it when necessary and, and rebuild it and do all the things that a potter does. It has to be moldable. But even further than that, the clay also has to remain in the potter's hand to be effective. Meaning, we all, I would assume most of us drink coffee, right? Um, let's say we, we, we get behind, get, it, get in on a potter's wheel and we take a piece of clay and we make it into a coffee cup, coffee mug. And it goes through all of the kiln and the process and whatnot and we begin to use it. Well, if that coffee mug is just sitting in the cabinet all the time, it's of really no use, is it? It's only useful when it's in the hand of the potter. So there's two principles here from this parable that you and I need to understand. Number one, we, we need to be moldable. We need to allow God to mold us and shape us and fashion us into the man or the woman that he wants us to be. And we also need to remain in his hands so that we might be effective for his plans and his purposes. This week's memory verse just follows along in this principle, and it's John 15 and verse 5. Look with me at this verse. I hope you'll memorize the verses as we go through them. Jesus said this, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Now watch this. Because you can do nothing without me. Think about that last statement. You can do nothing without me. If we want to be used by the Lord, if we want to get involved with what God is doing in the world for his kingdom purposes, we can only do so if we remain close 
to Christ, if we abide in Christ, because without him, we can't do anything. So God invites me to become involved with him and his work. Next, God speaks to me, revealing himself, his purposes, and his ways. God speaks to me, revealing himself, his purposes, and his ways. Now, we see this in verses 2 through 8 of of Exodus chapter 3. And we've read most of those, but I want to just begin here um, and and look with me at at verse 7. Let's start there. It says, Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now notice what we read there. God reveals to Moses what he's getting ready to do. He says two things. He says, number one, I'm getting ready to rescue my people from the power of the Egyptians. God says, watch what I'm getting ready to do. And then he says, secondly, not only am I going to rescue them, but I'm going to bring them to the promised land. Two major things God's getting ready to do. I'm going to rescue them from the oppression and the slavery and the bondage of the Egyptians. And not only that, I'm going to bring them to the promised land. I'm going to bring them to that land flowing with milk and honey that I promised. And so God reveals to Moses what he's getting ready to do. In Scripture, we see this more times than not, that that whenever God is preparing to do something, he reveals that plan to to either a person or a group of people. Let, Let me just give you a few examples. Noah, right? God revealed to Noah what he was getting ready to do with the flood and invited Noah to get involved with him in that work of redemption. God revealed uh, to Abraham what he was getting ready to do. Abraham uh, was, 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 is the father of the Hebrew people, and God appeared to him and said, Abraham, I want you to leave your family, your country, your job. I want you to leave everything you're familiar with, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. He didn't tell him where. He said, but I want you to go, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make you into a nation from which all the world, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. Joseph, God showed Joseph what he was getting ready to do. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, and he spent time in prison. And then he was elevated to the palace, and, and it, God used Joseph to bring his, the descendants of Jacob, those 70 other descendants, to Egypt so that they might survive the famine. God revealed to David what he was going to do, and God revealed to Peter that he would be the evangelist to the Jew, and to Paul that he'd be the evangelist to the Gentile, and over and over and over, more times than not, when God is getting ready to do something, he he will reveal himself and his purposes and his ways. Now, listen carefully to me, church. His revelation never contradicts his word. Never. It always agrees with his word. Over my years in ministry, I've, I've often had folks come to me and say, well, well, God told me to do this. Number one, I very seldom argue with that because that's a pretty bold statement. But I do ask this question. Can you support that from God's word? Because if you cannot, then I doubt God's called you to do that. It's pretty simple. 
But if you tell me God's told you to do something, then I'm going to say, well, we're going to find out if that's true or not shortly. <laughs> but it never disagrees with God's word, okay? So that's one thing we need to understand. So God speaks to me, revealing himself, his purposes, and his ways. Next, God's invitation for me to join him leads to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. God's invitation for me to join him leads to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. Look with me there in Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you when you bring the people out of Egypt. You will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they asked me, What is his name? What should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Look with me at chapter 4 and verse 1. Moses answered, What if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say the Lord did not appear to you? Now look with me at verses 10 through 13 in chapter 4. But Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, either in the past or recently or since you've been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. The Lord said to him, Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. Now, we didn't go into all of the verses associated with that, but, but, but in short, here's what's happening. God is inviting Moses to join him in his work, and he's, he's calling him to go back to Egypt and, and lead the Hebrew people free. And Moses, for one reason or another, right one right after the other, says, I'm not the right man. I can't do this, Lord. You've got to find somebody else. What if they don't believe me? How can I convince them that you've sent me? What do I do? And, and Moses just began to share all of the doubts and all of the fears that every one of us in this room would have also if it was us at that burning bush. Every one of us would, would, would do the same thing. But Moses looked for, for any and every reason not to go back to Egypt, not to lead the Hebrew people to freedom, not to get involved with what God is doing. Listen, he, he did his very best to convince God to use someone else, anyone else. Moses didn't care. I'm just not the right guy. And you and I have done the very same thing and continue to do the same thing, don't we? We, we often look for any excuse not to join God in, in what he's doing. Lord, you, you don't understand. This stage of my life is too busy for me to get involved with that right now. I, I can't add another thing to my plate. Okay? Maybe we need to move, remove some things from the plate. Or Lord, you know, right now I don't have the finances that are necessary to do that. I, I just, I can't make that work. Or, or maybe, Lord, I, I'm, I'm not eloquent in speech. I, I'm not gifted in that arena, Lord. I, I, I can't do that. 
You know what I, so fascinates me about Scripture is that as you study the characters of Scripture, God always used the least likely of people to do what he wanted to do. Don't you find that fascinating? Six of the 12 apostles were fishermen. Nothing wrong with fishermen, but they weren't the most educated or the most intellectual or the most gifted of that culture. And yet God says, those are the men I want to use to turn this world upside down. Don't you find it amazing? God used a prostitute by the name of Rahab. And he used a foreigner by the name of Ruth. All throughout Scripture, God uses men and women. He uses the eighth son of Jesse, the one who was responsible for tending the sheep. Think about that, church. God doesn't use the equipped. He equips the called. Moses was no different. There were probably a thousand people more gifted than Moses. Here's the principle. Listen carefully. We cannot stay where we are and go with God at the same time. We can either stay where we are and miss out on what God wants to do, or we can go with God and be a part of something extraordinary. But we can't do both. And that is the crisis of belief that every one of us face. We come to an intersection, and we have this opportunity in front of us. God is moving, and God is working. We can either go with God and be a part of something extraordinary, or, or we can say no and just kind of continue to meander through life. But we, we can't do both. This crisis of belief requires faith and action. And then finally, I must make adjustments in my life to join God in what he is doing. I must make adjustments in my life to join God in what he is doing. Look with me at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 4. Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, return to Egypt. For all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. Moses had to make some adjustments. He literally had to move from one place to another. He had to, to leave all that he had built and accumulated and acquired in Midian. And he had to leave to go to Egypt. He had to make some adjustments. Now listen carefully to what we read in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger. For Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. By faith he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. And when the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned." Moses had to make some adjustments to his life to get involved with what God is doing. 
And as you see in the life of Moses, as he was willing to walk by faith, not by sight, to walk by faith and to make the necessary adjustments in his life, here's what we see of Moses. And this is what you and I often think about when we think about Moses. We don't think about the Moses who said, God, use somebody else, right? We think about the Moses that had this very intimate and this very personal and this very real relationship with God. We think about the Moses on Mount Sinai who, who, who got to experience the Shekinah glory of God. Well, he would have never gotten to experience that if he didn't make adjustments in his life years earlier, Right? That's the same Moses that God hid in the cleft of that rock, but allowed him to experience his glory and his majesty that said, God, use somebody else. God, I'm not the right person. God, I can't do this. He had to walk by faith. And once we know and once we understand how God is working, and as we adjust our life accordingly, listen, we can expect God to work in us and we can expect God to work through us to accomplish his purposes. I would imagine every one of us are guilty of asking this question. I know I am. What is God's will for my life? It's not a bad question, but I don't think it's the best question. And as you study this week, you'll see that. The, the better question is this. What is God's will? See, once we understand what God's will is, then we adjust our lives accordingly and we get involved with what God is doing. And are you ready for this? Then we will find ourselves in the center of God's will. We'll find ourselves where God wants us to be. And so let's start asking the question, what is God's will? God, where are you working? God, what are you doing? And how can I get plugged into that? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day today. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word, Lord, and to sing your praises and to fellowship. And Father God, as we seek to know and to do your will, as we seek to follow you faithfully, Lord, grab hold of every heart and every mind. Draw us close to Jesus. And Father God, maybe there's an individual here today, a man or a woman, a college student, a high school student, middle school student, whatever it may be. Maybe there's an individual today here, Lord, who's never surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ. I humbly ask and pray, God, that today in this place you would bring them to Jesus. You would draw them to Christ. You would show them their sin and their need of a Savior. And today, Lord, they would say yes to Jesus. Today they would surrender in faith to the God who left heaven who came to this earth to die for them, who rose from the dead victoriously, and who offers us forgiveness of sin and the certainty of eternal life. Lord God, bring them to Jesus. Father God, be glorified, be magnified, and be exalted in this place. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.